HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, Today we're going to be talking with Paul Greenberg, uh, one of my favorite writers uh, in the uh, the lexicon of food writers, but really just a great writer overall. Uh, Paul, in case you don't know him, is the uh, James Beard Award winning author and essayist. He wrote uh, the best-selling Four Fish that came out a few years ago. And since 2005, uh, he has been writing regularly for the New York Times, for Food and Wine, Civil Eats, and so many other publications. I honestly can't even list them here. Um, But his focus is always on fish, aquaculture, and the future of our oceans and waterways. Um, And today we're going to talk about his new book, American Catch, The Fight for Our Local Seafood. Penguin Press published this a few months ago. Welcome to the show again, Paul. I really appreciate you coming on today. I know you've been making the rounds. Yeah, (laughs) it's been a lot of fish, let's just say. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just pissed that I didn't scoop Lenny Lopate on this one. (laughs) Or Terry Gross. Yeah, no, it's been an interesting time because, uh, you know, it's the peak of sockeye salmon season. Yes. And um, I've actually been eating a lot of sockeye salmon with a lot of chefs and talking about sockeye salmon. Yeah, well, you know, no time like the present to be doing that. And uh, I'm assuming, are you going to come to Chef's Collaborative again? Uh, I'm... Jury's out. I got to see. I'm. I'm. I've got nine symposia I'm supposed to do between Whoa. now and then. Uh, so, <laughs> see if I'm still walking by then. Yeah, no kidding. Well, tell us uh, what's. So, what's the catch? Why did you write this book in particular? Well, uh, you know, I grew up fishing, and yep. you know, had a little boat, and that was sort of for me. There was no distinction between what you ate and what you caught, and what was local. It was all your fish. Um, And as I've waded in deeper into the sort of world of international fisheries, for fish, the last book, you know, really looked at the domestication of the ocean that's going on that, um, you know, by such and such a date, probably already passed it actually at this point, um, more than half of the seafood that we eat will be farmed versus wild. Right. Years ago, that wasn't the case. Well, the other thing that I stumbled upon after finishing that book 
was this other very large statistic, which is that more than 85% of the seafood Americans eat um, is coming to us from abroad, right. um, is, is imported. But meanwhile, about 3 billion pounds of what we catch, um, which frankly would actually be enough to satisfy the per capita demand of seafood in this country, but 3 billion pounds is exported. Um, so that Crazy. to me is the catch. Is like we're sending abroad all this really nice wild high omega-3 fish, and in return we're getting largely farmed product, uh, often from Asia. So to me that was worth breaking down. Absolutely. And Paul, let me just ask you this. Did you get a sense of what kind of numbers we're talking about in terms of gross domestic product? You know, because like the you know cattle or the livestock industry accounts for six percent roughly of our GDP. What does fish? How much does fish represent? Well, I mean, you're talking you know several billion dollars. We we catch about nine billion pounds uh-huh. a year, and three billion pounds of it is exported. Wow. Um, and you know, it, it depends how you max you know how you calculate the dollar figure, but it's much smaller. I mean. A better, yeah, a better way to express it is in terms of our overall diet. Mm-hmm. Um, we eat about 200 pounds of what I call land food, you know, right. beef, poultry, pig, um, 200 pounds of that a year. But we only eat about 15 pounds of seafood. So yeah. you can more or less extrapolate value from that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a f- tiny part of the American diet, and I think actually to our detriment, it's a tiny part of our diet. Oh, I think that's been proven pretty conclusively, actually. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but tell us, so describe the evolution of this devil's bargain we've made with uh, selling all of our wild catch, and uh, meanwhile buying in this um, lesser quality, inferior uh, farmed product, which as you point out, has a much lower <laughs> nutritional profile. Yeah. Well, um, as far as the um, export market, um, we've always been exporters. We always mm-hmm. like to export fish. And, you know, if you've read my, Mark Kurlansky's cod, I did. You, know, you understand that codfish, for example, was one of the key components of triangular trade yeah. um, that allowed, you know, all this, you know, different stuff to move around the world. Um, and in fact, New York City, up until like 1920 or so, uh-huh. was a net exporter of oysters produced in New York City waters. So right. we are no strangers to sending fish abroad. Um, what has changed in the last, I would say, 30 or 40 years has been um, the rise of aquaculture uh, mm-hmm. in Asia, particularly. Um, there, shrimp, tilapia, Pangasius catfish, these are all headliner creatures that are now within the top six um, fish or seafoods that Americans consume, and mostly they're farmed, and mostly they're coming to us from abroad. So mm-hmm. that's a huge swath of it at this point. Yeah, and there's really no way to um, address sort of some of the regulatory issues. I mean, we don't really go over and inspect how they are raising uh, their farmed fish in other countries, particularly in Asia, do we? No, I mean, we're, you know, the FDA says that they inspect about 2% mm-hmm. um, or a little less than 2% of all the seafood that comes um, into this country. Um, and, you know, they claim that that's a sufficient amount because they, they have algorithms that, you know, if, if a shipment or if it you know, meets a certain profile, it gets flagged. Um, and that very may well be true. But my experience, you know, in, in being in Vietnam and mm-hmm. looking at the just incredible size of the industry and, you know, the Asian countries should be complimented on the ability to produce that much protein. But on the other hand, um, Thailand, which is the largest producer of shrimp for us, um, they, um, I had always been told by different certifying agencies that if you're going to buy shrimp from abroad, you should buy it from Thailand. Well, this year, um, we found out that two things. First of all, 
a disease called early mortality syndrome, which, which you know, if you're over 40, that strikes heart, you know, fear in your heart. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, it does, early mortality syndrome does not affect humans, but it does affect shrimp. Right. And um, it's been sweeping through Asia. And last year, Thailand lost over a billion dollars in shrimp crop. Um, wow. The other thing is that, oh, as you might have seen in The Guardian, there was a story came out recently that um, a certain percentage of the labor used to catch the so-called trash fish that are then ground up and fed to these Asian shrimp farms, but particularly in Thailand. Mm -hmm. A certain percentage of that labor appears to be slaves. So, you know, it's kind of shocking and, um, you know, something to consider in the overall kind of quality coming across our gunnels. Um, You know, then the last thing which I'll say is that there are, of course, very good producers of shrimp and tilapia and pangasius in Asia, um, but there are tens of thousands of them just in Thailand alone. So it's very hard to really get a bead on the regulatory system. And if you have a system that's already allowing slave labor, what does that say about other aspects of it? You know, absolutely. Safety and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what you were, I mean, one of the things that struck me uh, in reading your book, actually, about, uh, you know, when I was uh, looking at some of these issues about labor, labor disputes and, and, and the cost of labor being mm-hmm. so much cheaper in, uh, in Asia than it is here, obviously, that's one reason why we love our cheap fish. And just as we love our cheap meat, you know, it's like we are really, I mean, it really is a devil's bargain because here we are, we're looking, always looking to cut those costs, whether it's because you're running a franchise like Red Lobster or John Long John Silver's or whether you're just a consumer who wants a bargain. Um, and what you end up buying is something that not only perpetuates, un, you know, <laughs> unappealing practices like slavery, um, but also uh, just kind of overall degrades our sense of what this food system should be. And and yep. the other thing that really struck me about this was that the parallel with um with the with the shrimp die off that you just described um and other diseases that are specific to one particular breed or or uh strain of a species is this it's also again very similar to whether it's a crop like potatoes or whether sure. it's a livestock breed, you yeah. know. Yeah. You really you take you know monocropping you do at your peril clearly That's and, right. and you would That's think right. that somebody would have figured this out now. <laughs> no, and, um, you know, you would think, because with aquaculture, you know, it's still a relatively new thing. Yeah. Um, you know, this, they, they speak of it as the blue revolution, and it really only started getting going in the 50s and 60s and really blossomed in the 70s and 80s. Um, and you would think having some of the lessons of land food, they would have learned some of those lessons. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, while there, you know, again, there are certainly good examples of good aquaculturists, um, there does seem there's always this downward pressure, uh, price pressure right. um, that that you know puts things that should be not so commodity like, but puts them into the commodities mold. Um, and you know, as you say, it's it's done at our peril, and then we have to figure out how to undo what we've done. Yeah, and how to wean the American public and really the world, but I mean the American public off of this, uh, you know, absurdly cheap food, which yep. is not so cheap as it turns out. Well, no, and you know what's interesting too is that um, it's not like we don't produce some very expensive fish. Yeah, um, right. Um, like the sockeye and, salmon you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or you know, you go to the fish market now, and you see these. You know, it's very hard to find a wild fish uh, for under fifteen dollars a pound. Yes. And that kind of gives the impression, I think, that there's not enough fish out there. But in fact, we're actually producing a lot of fish. But it's just that these Asian markets. Um, and some markets in Europe as well are ready to pay much more money than we're ready to pay for it, that they right. understand 
the value of it from a nutritional point of view and, and almost from a... From a gustatory point of view, right? Yeah, for, well, certainly from a gustatory point of view, but almost like kind of like there are, there is, there is a wild carries a premium and, you know, it carries within it this untamperedness um, yeah. that people appreciate and they particularly appreciate it in countries which don't have a lot of wild left. Um, yeah, and I th- I think that that's why it has a certain appeal in Asia, which it doesn't have here. Right. So you're saying that the Asians have fished overfished, just as we overfished our, <laughs> at least yes. in the Northeast. I know that we overfished our, uh, mm-hmm. you know, George's Bank all along the northeastern seaboard was really damaged in this. I guess the 70s. This is sort of when it came on to because my mother used to write for the University of Rhode Island uh, School of Oceanography. Oh yeah, and she yeah she did a ton of work around aquaculture actually as it was just in its beginning. She had a newsletter that was regular, uh, that regularly covered that stuff. But I remember her writing a lot about the um, sort of the, the problems with George's Bank and the overfishing and what that mm-hmm. would mean for the industry going forward. And it has uh, really never been totally resolved, to my knowledge, although Catch Shares, I think the new program Catch Shares seems to be working pretty well. I don't yeah. know if you follow that. I mean, the, the thing is, is that it's actually interesting to, to look at aquaculture and overfishing and um, exporting all as one kind of beast of a seafood system. Um, it's interesting to figure to see to look back and, and 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 see what caused us to get into this overfishing dilemma in the yes. first place. Um, you know, the United States controls more ocean than any country on Earth, something like 2.8 billion acres. Incredible, but, but it's a lot. Um, but you know, again, 85 percent of our seafood imported. But how we came to inc- control all that water was really kind of a, a political sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, nations were making grabs to control more ocean, and finally. Um, the United States uh, uh, unilaterally declared a 200-mile limit, up to 200 miles, um, of, of what would be, become an exclusive economic zone. That's um, the Magnuson-Stevens lot, Act, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of people think that that was done, um, you know, just so that we could get our hands on more fish, and, and partially it was, but it was also a territorial thing. Like, you know, after World War II, there's a certain hawkish part of the population that wanted to have a greater buffer between us and our enemies. And mm-hmm. once we um, decided we were going to declare this exclusive economic zone, suddenly people were like, well, we, we, we better get some people out on that water to control it. And the easiest thing to do was to put fishermen out there. Uh-huh. Um, so all of the subsidizing Oh, of how fishing, interesting, Paul. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and so a lot of the fishing the subsidies that went on in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was incredible deals for fishermen in the 80s. Um, you know, you could amortize the value of your boat very quickly so you could get a new boat. So you see this tremendous buildup uh-huh. of American fishing effort. And, um, you know, surprise, uh, when you build up fishing effort with through subsidies, you're going to get overfishing. And so we're largely recovering from that. Um, and as you point out, um, George's Bank is still depleted as far as ground fish is concerned, um, yeah. uh, Gulf of Maine. Um, but at the same time, what's happening really in the seafood system is that you have um, these shortcomings still in the Northeast, and what's filling the shortcomings is a combination of Alaska, and Alaska still has incredibly abundant fisheries, uh, really, really good stuff, um, and um, uh, aquaculture product from Asia. But what's interesting is that, you know, Alaska has enough seafood right now to supply Americans with pretty much all the seafood they would need. And it's wild. And it's wild. And we're sending, meanwhile, 80% of our wild salmon catch we send abroad. Right. Um, 600 million pounds of pollock we send abroad. In return, we get catfish, uh, Pegasus catfish, and tilapia and shrimp. Right. 
And and a lot of that uh, Pollock, for example, comes goes away and then comes back as sort of an added value product like crab leg, you know, like that, you know, those famous sea legs that they use in cheap sushi and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, isn't that also, aren't we like selling it and then buying it back Yeah, to Pollock, a certain extent uh, as well? Pollock is very much part of this sort of, you know, food masher over in Asia where mm-hmm. a certain portion of the Pollock goes over there. Um, it'll get, it'll be frozen at sea. Mm-hmm. in the Bering Sea, taken to Asia, defrosted, processed, refrozen, and sent back to us. Um, Brilliant. And that's, you know, the Asian <laughs> stuff is mostly that we're getting is uh, fish sticks, um, right. prepared fillets, things like that. Um, the surimi, the, that's the product that you're referring to before, the, the sort of fake crab in your, yeah. in your California roll. A lot of that, oddly, is getting processed in Germany and the Netherlands. Um, no kidding. Uh, yeah, I haven't been to a Surimi factory yet, but um, I'd like to see it. I'm sure it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to take this back um, just quickly to to sort of the beginning of the book, where you you have you know your book is divided into three sort of main parts. One is about oysters, mm-hmm. one is about shrimp, and one is about salmon. And they were, I mean, by the way, I don't know if I've told you how very delightful your book is. Oh, thank you. No, really. I mean, not only is it very informative, but you have the most charming and engaging writing style. It was oh, just, well, it was good. a delight to read. It really <laughs> was. To my partner, she doesn't always find me that <laughs> charming and engaging, but <laughs> I'm just going to patch her in right now if we could. Um, <laughs> yes, do. <laughs> um, so she can you, hear firsthand. Um, yeah, so, well, yeah, so the book's broken up into three parts, and, you know, it's funny because Many people have come out this book in funny ways. Um, I was actually having coffee with Michael Pollan out in Berkeley. Oh, yeah. Just uh, drop a name there, Paul. Uh-huh. Well, I, uh-huh. I, I, no, but it was an interesting point because, you know, he is, you know, I, I was joking with him that um, he sells as many books relative to me as Americans eat meat relative to fish. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so, I like that analogy. <laughs> so that kind of works. But it was funny, you know, so he, he and I were talking about um, – how you write a book and then what happens with the book, what the, the, the one or two phrases that get picked up in the media and, uh-huh. and, and, and transmitted. And the thing that really got picked up in this book was the whole double frozen issue. You know, the, the fact that so much like 80% of our salmon is going abroad and getting frozen first, sent over to right. China, defrosted bone and sent back. And I was like saying to, to Michael, like, you know, I don't understand why they're clutching onto that so much. And he said, well, you know, it's just a symptom of the larger picture that you're trying to paint. And the picture that I was really trying to paint was the loss of both ecological and economic seafood infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so once he said that, I kind of like, yeah, maybe that's true. Um, so, yeah, getting back to the structure of the book, the book is really a lot about um, the devaluing and loss of the ecological infrastructure yeah. that underpins it. So I do... Break it up into three parts. The first part is about oysters in the east, um, shrimp in the Gulf, and then salmon, uh, in sockeye salmon in Alaska. Yeah, and then the oyster. So the oyster thing that you know, and I think a lot of people at this point know that you know the the waters of New York were literally paved with oysters, and you could yep. buy oysters for a penny a piece, and every cart, every street corner had an oyster cart. But what I think that um, people are less aware of is the impact of what you called oyster texture. 
architecture. Yeah. And I, I wondered if you could just, um, you know, unpack that for a second and tell sure. people what, like, what, what it really means to have lost that oyster yeah. culture, not only well, as a gustatory thing, but as a, as an as environmental a issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, oyster texture, technically, that's a term that was coined um, by a landscape architect who's in the book um, named yeah. Kate Orff. And you can actually Google it and find her TED Talk. But broadly, I suppose you could say that oyster texture, oyster texture, existed before Kadorf in the form of wild oyster reefs that used to really dominate um, coastal ecosystems, not just in New York City, but, you know, the equivalent of the Amtrak corridor. I was, I was taking the train from Washington to Boston the other day mm-hmm. and um, just noting that every city I was passing by was a former oyster, oyster estuary. Yeah. Um, and, and so oysters build in three dimensions, um, unlike uh, most bivalves. And what that means is that an oyster dies, another thing, another oyster sets on the shell, it grows, another one grows on it. And before you know it, you can have oyster reefs, you know, that are tens of feet, if not dozens of feet high. Um, And these act as uh, nearshore baffles. Um, They're undulated a lot of times um, so that when wave action comes in over them, tidal action comes over them, the roughness and the undulation of those reefs break up wave action uh-huh. and can actually serve as um, storm protection. Um, right. And, and in a way, you know, life, it's funny how life imitates itself, um, no matter who's doing it, whether it's people doing it or whether it's oysters doing it. So the way nature does it, oyster build, oysters build the equivalent of a natural seawall um, in front of the near shore, uh-huh. um, breaking up wave energy, making it so that other things further upland can grow. And that's where you start to get salt marsh, um, which is another great ecosystem. It's actually the most productive ecosystem uh, on the planet in terms mm-hmm. of sheer amount of food energy per acre produced. And mm-hmm. it um, sequesters more carbon uh, than any other ecosystem on Earth. And surprise, we've lost 60 to 70 percent of our right. salt marsh in this country. Right. So all those things working together, the oysters at the, at the, at the leading edge, uh, marsh grasses behind it, um, create this very dynamic ecosystem that is productive of life and protective of life. So that's, to me, what really made me want to focus in on oysters. And, um, sure. and also, you know, it was, it was an interesting opportunity. I mean, I think some of your listenership, particularly in Brooklyn, knows about some of the work that the New York Harbor School is doing to Indeed. Yep. Uh, restore oysters. Um, and I, you know, went scuba diving with them and have been sort of tracking their progress um, throughout the New York bite. And um, that's very exciting. I think, you know, it's, I often have been, you know, the phrase, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, <laughs> is in my head. And I feel like if oysters can be re- restored to New York City, they could be restored everywhere, and it would be great for coastal protection, but it would also be great for seafood. Yeah, well, it would certainly beat the hell out of building a billion-dollar seawall. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I can't get over the foolishness of... Uh, you know, the powers that be. But I guess somebody's going to get a payoff with that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's going to create I mean, jobs. It's going to, you know, somebody can, some politician can run on it. And Yeah, and, and also the other thing is that, you know, about seafood is that wild seafood, um, the, the, the benefits it bestows and the profits that it gives you are diffuse, yeah. whereas um, political and investment opportunities are the opposite of diffuse. You know, they're they're concentrated, right. and that's why they and very can get visible. Yeah, you know, investors, politicians behind them, um, and so that was kind of the story that I saw again and again was that the diffuse value of the diffuse very good value of seafood undermined again and again by extractive and polluting industries that had few beneficiaries but who benefited quite a bit and who had the sort sure. of skullduggery to pursue their agendas. 
Well, I, mean, I think we'll take a short break here because when we come back, we can talk about that skullduggery uh, in regards to the British petroleum spill in the Gulf of Mexico yeah. and the impact of that on the shrimp. Yeah. So stay with us, folks, with Paul Greenberg. We're talking American Catch, and we'll be right back after this sponsor drop. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hey, my name's Edward Lee, and I'm the chef at 610 Magnolia in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Right on, Edward Lee. <laughs> this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. On the line with me today is Paul Greenberg, author of the newly published American Catch. Um, and we were just talking about uh, skullduggery and how, um, how industry has managed to undermine uh, sort of the basic... Um, I don't know, the basic economic uh, attractions of seafood by showing a, a more uh, robust, theoretically a more robust and certainly more visible return on the dollar. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about um, about the impact of the British petroleum spill in the Gulf of Mexico on an, on an aquatic and ecosystem that has thrived for centuries and provided us with incredible food. And somehow we pulled down our pants and let the energy industry have its way with our yeah. us, with our seafood. And, yeah, and uh, so and let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and I should say, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a national problem and it doesn't involve Absolutely. just petroleum industry um prior there's a great book that's worth your readership reading called tom's river that's about the siva pollution of um the oh yes portion, portions of the, of the new york bite so it's a very yeah. similar story but in the case of um uh the louisiana delta the mississippi delta delta this is among certainly the largest uh, marshlands in um, the united states mm-hmm. um it's an incredibly abundant ecosystem louisiana still after everything that's been thrown against it Louisiana is still by far the largest um, seafood producer in the continental United States. Wow. Um, and a lot of it is a result of the salt marsh. Um, the salt marsh that you know, is the Mississippi Delta allows uh, creatures to uh, either spawn or to rear in, in all mm-hmm. the little nooks and crannies of grasses. Um, and something like 70% of um, Gulf seafood, northern Gulf seafood, relies on that marsh um, for a portion of its existence. Um, now... Um, the bad news is that that marsh is now disappearing at a rate of about a football field an hour. Um, Incredible. And, uh, a very, very, very serious problem. And, you know, so th- this actually put you had asked earlier what was the genesis of, of this book. And um, one, one, there were several genes- geneses, I suppose, but one, one of them was that initially I'd sold the book uh, as an oil spill book. When, the, when, when uh-huh. Four Fish came out in 2010, um, the oil spill just happened, and I yep. often like to say that I'm the only person who benefited from the Gulf oil spill. Um, because <laughs> when, when Four Fish came out, everybody wanted to talk about the oil spill, or they wanted to talk yeah. about the ocean, and I was the nearest book at hand, so I often found myself talking to people like Terry Gross about the oil spill, when meanwhile, you know, I'd really never spent much time in Louisiana at all. Um, so, 
soon after I sold this book um, called, and I called it, you know, beneath or below the horizon. You know, remember that was the BP yes. horizon mm-hmm. sure. rig. And there were all these, um, you know, I was really, you know, my, my publisher was very excited, you know, oh, yes, you're going to write the, the authoritative book about the oil spill. Um, so, you know, the book sold, I got my contract, I, you know, got ready to go down to the Gulf, and then all of a sudden all these oil spill books came out. Um, there was Under the Horizon, Over the Horizon, Beyond <laughs> the Horizon, uh, Shadows on the Gulf, Death on the Gulf, oh, Sea in Flames. Yeah. It was just endless, endless, endless. And I ran into my friend Carl Sassina, um, who's, you know, big you know, ocean guy, and um, he had just written A Sea in Flames, this, this book about the spill, and I said, Carl, I'm supposed to write a book about the oil spill, and he said, don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. And he said, all the scientists are caught up in litigation. Um, nobody's going to, you know, the, the, nobody's going to know what really happened for years and years. Don't do it. Well, meanwhile, I had already scheduled this trip to Louisiana, and I um, went out with a shrimper in the middle of the night, and we were talking about the oil spill, and, you know, I was there to talk about the oil spill, and he was there to tell me about the oil spill. And at a certain point, we just sort of ran out of things to talk about. Yeah. Um, and it suddenly really occurred to me that, it, this really wasn't the issue. That um, the real issue was a the dissolution of the Louisiana Marsh, which allows all the uh, love of our shrimp to exist in the first place, and that is in part from the oil industry, but it's not from the spill. It's from you know almost a century yeah. of development in the Delta. And then the other aspect of it was um, foreign imported shrimp yeah, just um, overturning say, the market. Yeah. So they're they're because our shrimp cost more to produce and their shrimp well, I mean, are cheaper. It's a wild product, and yeah, yeah. It, is, it is. It's very expensive to trawl shrimp. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, you know a lot of lot of fuel is involved. And um, what happened in the starting in the '40s and '50s and '60s was this uh, biotech revolution around shrimp. Um, it started actually in Japan. Uh, a guy named Motosaku Fujinaga mm-hmm. um, was the first to domesticate. Um, something called a karuma prawn, and this was a, a shrimp that was generally used in a dish called dancing shrimp. Oh, yeah, um, you described that. It was a wonderful thing, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so that dancing shrimp is this shrimp. It's um, You take a karuma prawn, you rip off its carapace, while, and while it's still alive, you dunk it in sake, and you eat it while it's still sort of wriggling in your mouth. Mm. Um, so that was the first shrimp to really be industrially domesticated. And Fujinaga then trained a lot of graduate students who fanned out all over Southeast Asia um, and would go on to tame the tiger prawn, and then eventually we got the white leg shrimp. And now the white leg shrimp, which is from the Pacific, accounts for 80% um, of shrimp consumed uh, in the United States at this point. Right. Um, almost all the And not our Louisiana brown. Right, and Louisiana brown shrimp, which is the shrimp that I really focused in on the book, at least in the first part of the chapter, um, really is just got sort of looped into the commodities chain. I mean, while the Louisiana brown has a very specific taste, as does the Gulf white shrimp, as does the pink shrimp down there, they're each a little bit different. Uh-huh. Um, for the public, they're just shrimp, right. and um, they get sort of funneled into this price point that really doesn't give one product um, significant value over the other. Um, so that was that. So that, that was one aspect. But as I said, the other thing is the fact that the Louisiana marshes are disappearing at a rate of a football field an hour. Um, yeah. and, and that happened as a result of not of an oil spill, but um, in the early days of oil development in, in Louisiana Delta, um, it was found to be more efficient to cut shipping channels through the marsh so that you could get a barge to the refinery um, right. without having to kind of go on a goose chase to find your port. Um, but also, 
huge amounts of pipeline were laid beneath the marsh. Um, when you cut into a uh, into a marsh, um, you allow salt water to penetrate into places that had traditionally been more brackish or even fresh. Right. Once the roots of those plants get exposed to that salt water, they die. And when they die, they don't hold the soil anymore. And then you start to see the whole thing slip away, right. um, which is in fact what's happening right now. Incredible. And the other as <clears throat> excuse me, the other uh, thing that is having a tremendous impact on the delta is something you and I talked about about a year ago when you wrote the article about how agricultural runoff is yes. affecting the Mississippi. Um, yep. Why don't we just uh, say? You know, give us a little thumbnail of that, too, because that's a a major issue. um, The the Mississippi, of course, is the very heartland of American agriculture, and um, it was the Mississippi used to have a floodplain several hundred miles wide. Um, And when you think about it, if you look at one of those topographical maps of the United States, you'll see that Mississippi drains both the Rockies and the Appalachians, so it's it's just a huge, huge watershed. Um, In the course of the last 150 years, We've gradually been straightening the Mississippi River, um, pinching it into a kind of perched river situation, um, making it run much faster than it used to run. Uh-huh. Um, used to be all sorts of nutrients that would have gone into the river would have settled out and fertilized the bottom of the river, allowed all sorts of nice ecosystem benefits to occur. But no, that's not what is now the case. And then add to that industrial uh, development, I'm sorry, ag- agricultural development um, of, a, of an industrial nature throughout the Mississippi plant watershed, um, and you have tremendous influxes of nitrogen and phosphorus going into the Mississippi. Um, right. They don't settle out because the river's going too fast. They get shot out into the Gulf of Mexico, um, where they fertilize algae. Um, the algae blooms, dies, gets consumed by bacteria, oxygen gets sucked out, and that's where you get the famous dead zone. Right. Um, that we hear so much about, and that is in full swing right now. And that's um, and pretty much what happened in the Chesapeake as well, am I right? Yeah, I mean, the Chesapeake has different hydrodynamics. It's not like one river that's driving the whole thing. Right. But, you know, you do have a lot of agriculture. Um, you do have uh, a lot of um, nutrient loading. And um, now, actually, interestingly, a year or two ago, um, they established in the Chesapeake what's called a total maximum daily load TMDL of nutrients mm-hmm. that can be put into the watershed, um, and it, you know it's a it's a it's a very noble goal uh, to try and put a number on that. And in fact, it's actually the unfinished business of the Clean Water Act. Um, you yeah. know, the Clean Water Act was really supposed to limit or even end the discharge of pollution um, into our waterways. Um, agriculture kind of got and you know, a nod and an opt-out for a lot of the time of the Clean Water Act. Yeah. It's always been the sort of unfinished business to deal with um, nitrogen and phosphorus um, as a, you know, as a product. Um, you know, these, these so-called non-point sources. Um, the first mm-hmm. things that the Clean Water Act really dealt with was point sources, you know, factories, uh, all, you know, places where you could send an inspector and say, there's something wrong with your effluent right. here. But with, you know, agriculture, which is so much more diffuse, it's really hard to kind of trace it back to the person who is doing the problem. Sure. Um, anyway, that's a long dog leg by way of saying that um, <laughs> we are, in a sense, trading uh, seafood for land food. Yeah. We're making um, the near shore much more hospitable to growing land food crops and making our near shore less productive of seafood, which I think is actually to the detriment of our health and to the detriment of the health of the country at large. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Food security, all that stuff. And and your dog leg, by the way, takes us along to um, your next point in the book, which was uh, the uh, impending pebble mine um, copper 
exploration that is going on up in Alaska at the head of the Bristol Bay waters where uh, we have the greatest uh, sockeye salmon run in the world, right? In the world. That's so, right. Yes. Um, yeah. you know, let's, let's, let's unpack that for just a second because you got to testify in front of Supreme Court about this and everything, right? Uh, well, no, I testified actually in the Senate um, about um, uh, uh, about genetically modified salmon, and then I appeared ah. at the Supreme oh, Court right. um, at, a, at a reception that was... Um, Put together, which included um, Senator Day O'Connor, which is fairly interesting. Yes, um, absolutely. She turns out to be actually a big fisherman, um, which you know I, I always like. I think I think I say in the book that um, fishermen are like moles that are planted um, in, throughout the political system, and, and they needn't be Democrats nor Republicans. They they just are fishermen first and foremost. And if you're a fisherman. You know, you can vote whatever way you're going to vote, but if somebody starts messing with your fish, um, that's when you start to get up in arms. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, but anyway, um, yeah, so Pebble Mine, I decided that was the third piece in the infrastructure puzzle. Um, you know, if, if oyster reefs really represent, um, you know, this incredible in-the-water infrastructure that was very important for seafood, um, if shrimp really represent the importance of salt marsh and uh-huh. what that does, salmon really represent... Um, Stuff upriver, um, the hydrology that allows energy to flow between land and sea. Um, and, you know, if you take a step back from Pebble Mine and what's going on in, up in Alaska, um, there's a slide that I often show uh, when I do a PowerPoint presentation uh, of the state of Connecticut, and it's a, you know, just the outline of the state, and then there are 3,000-odd 3, dots on that map. Uh-huh. Um, and there's usually a pause, and I say, you know, do you know what all these dots are? They're, they're actually dams, every single dot on this map. There are over 3,000 wow. dams wow. in the state of Connecticut. And I often say this is why people in Connecticut are so uptight, um, because their, <laughs> their, their chi is blocked. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but anyway, so um, that's the way we've reworked the hydrology of the entire country. Dams here, dams there, um, reworking industrialization. And what's striking when you go to Alaska, particularly to Bristol Bay, is you don't see any of that. You know, you still see, it's like going back in time, wow. and you see a fully functioning uh, interface between land and sea and the energy that it transmits. And the energy that it transmits is formidable. Um, you know, there are sure. over 40 million sockeye um, can come into that system every year, and that's just in Bristol Bay. Um, and the lake that connects um, the land with the sea, Lake Iliamna, at any one time might contain a billion uh, salmon um, of different Good sizes. Good Lord. So, and all of this, of course, is in the footprint um, of what would be the largest copper and gold uh, mine in the country um, yeah. right now. So you know, it's been on the you know in people's minds for about twenty years. The idea mm-hmm. that this incredibly large copper and gold deposit, which is somewhere in the order of three hundred to five hundred billion dollars worth of metals, yeah. um, happens to be adjacent to this last great um, sockeye salmon run. And um, you know, to get at all of that ore, you would have to uh, extract ten billion tons of ore. Um, you'd have to sift through it, and the percentages of the ore, I think, are somewhere in the, you know, less, you know, the single digits of all of that 10 billion tons. Yeah. So you have to, you know, take out the ore, then what do you do with 10 billion tons of tailings? Um, right. The, 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 there's actually nothing all you do with it. All treated with there's, chemicals. The, well, which have, well, they'll have mining waste, but, you know, importantly, the actual native soil of the area is sulfurous. Um, mm. uh, if, as I think Rick Halford, who's in the book, he's like a Republican senator. Yes state senator who's kind of become a very anti-pebble mine guy, but he was saying to me that if you were to describe the mine, but what it really is, it's a sulfur mine, um, right. not a copper not mine. not a copper mine, yeah. So there's so much sulfur in there, and once you expose that to air and water, um, it can become um, dangerous uh, and damaging to fisheries, um, not to mention copper itself. Um, copper in very small concentrations 
uh, when it gets into watersheds, um, uh, confuses fish or salmon, and it can impede their ability to migrate. Um, and in fact, actually, oftentimes people attribute um, the decline in salmonids, you know, trouts and salmons, right. um, in a lot of the country, even those that don't have connections to the ocean, but they attribute it to copper that's gotten into the water either through mining, but also through um, breaks in cars. That when you Whoa. break, that you're you're emitting carbon, uh, sorry, the copper into the into the water. Or into the into the into the system, and and uh-huh. these little trace amounts of copper are enough to st- throw off the system. That is um, shocking. So anyway, so <laughs> you know this huge mine is you know been people have been trying to do it for years, and um, it looked like it was coming to a head. Um, a big partner had been secured in the form of Anglo American PLC, yep. and um, looked like they were you know really going to start applying for permitting. But what's interesting, and why I put this as the sort of conclusion of American Catch is that fishermen, for the first time, really seem to kind of get their back up and say enough is enough. Um, And in this case, it was both sport fishermen and commercial fishermen, two sectors that usually detest one another, um, (laughs) got very, very, very uh, up in arms about this. Mm -hmm. And now we're at the point where the, um, the EPA has started the initial parts you know, of a process called a 404C action. And um, if that goes through, it would allow the federal government to step in um, and severely limit the amount of mining that could be done in the area, if not eliminate the possibility altogether. So that's where we're, we're at right, right now. Because the 404C is a, is, is a water protection resolution, with, isn't it? It's, well, it's within the Clean Water Act. It's yeah. just a, one of the clauses. So in and, other words, um, amazingly enough, the EPA may actually do something Yes, they might. They might. Um, but, you know, at this Jury's point, I'd out. heard... It hasn't happened Pebble, yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd heard that the Pebble Partnership um, is uh, possibly filing suit against the EPA mm-hmm. um, for feeling that, you know, that the EPA had overstepped its jurisdiction by starting the 404C. Um, and the question is, you know, are they going to tangle this up into some kind of lit- litigation that could last for a long time? Yes. Um, that would outlast the present administration, which grudgingly seems to be heading towards the direction of protecting... Bristol Bay. Yeah. So if they wait out this present administration, who's to say, you know, if Ted Cruz or somebody like that comes in, what they're going to feel about this mining project. And yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to walk away from $300 billion worth of metals. Well, um, you know, I find that those estimates are always kind of inflated. I mean, they, you know, they were telling people in uh, northern New York about fracking that they were, you know, there was X number, of, you know, and I happen to know that you know those those natural gas wells they don't last 10 or 25 years they last maybe 5 yeah. you know what i mean and probably you know this is a similar case of where they over you know inflate the numbers and 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 dangle this promise of everybody in alaska making a million bucks it ain't yeah. going to happen you know and then of course well, you, you know, have, and then there's no say, cleanup either the numbers that i have heard um is that the you know there'd be enough work for about 80 years of extraction, and I don't, you know, I'm not a mineralogist, I can't tell you whether that's correct or not, but, um, you know, nobody's saying it's going to be forever, um, but right. they are saying, you know, the studies that were made of the mine and the potential remediation that you would have to do following the opening of the mine, the EPA actually said, I think they said um, that it, the site would require perpetual remediation. Yes. You did so say that in, in the other words, book, like yeah. forever. Right. <laughs> that you would have to deal with for the them. rest of the world. Yeah, the world you know, history. Rest, you know, Until so we I'm, blow up. I'm, yeah. I just find it interesting that like ten, you know 10,000 years from now, you know, somebody going to find the document that requires him or her <laughs> to remediate, right. you know, and what are they going to feel about that? Um, yeah, exactly. And you know the other thing is that, you know, the, so the the value of the mine 3 to 500 billion dollars um all well and good. 
Um, and the salmon is, you know, it's orders of magnitude less valuable on a per annum basis. And this gets back to what we were saying earlier about right. the diffuse nature of fisheries versus the concentrated nature of industry and um, extraction. Um, yeah. So, you know, if the salmon run is worth three to $400 million a year, and I should say that's just the fish value. It doesn't include the residuals that some people put more at like $1.5 billion a year. But all right, let's say for the sake of argument and simplifying the math, it's $300 million for salmon and $300 billion for copper. So it's going to take you, you know, well over a thousand years to amortize that value um, uh, and make it equivalent. But, you know, but I mean, if, yeah, that's okay it, because you're not spending the perpetuity remediating your, that's right. you your environmental have disaster. You could have perpetual salmon. <laughs> So I exactly. certainly would choose perpetual salmon. <laughs> I would too. Paul, we only have a couple minutes left, and I, I wanted to ask you about the um, – uh, well, there were two things, actually, that I, I, re- I really wish we had gotten to, but maybe that will be another program. But sort of the, the lack of infrastructure in the production and distribution for some of the smaller um, fishing fleets, uh, to me, was a real parallel with, with uh, local agriculture. And the other thing is the consolidation of the seafood industry, um, yeah. which is very similar, again, to the livestock industry. And what yeah. does that mean going forward? Can we can we get a last word on that? Well, I mean, we've lost a lot of shoreside processing, um, mostly because um, those shoreside things have become the shoreside real estate sites have yeah, become really valuable. To. And as a, a fish processor or a fish fishing company guy told to me, you know, fish houses are becoming hotels all the time. You never hear of a hotel becoming a fish house. Yeah, um, and that kind of is what is happening. Uh, to so much um, potential uh, to process fish locally. It's one of the reasons we're offshoring so much processing. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, countries. most of our processing takes place in Asia or in Europe, yeah. as you pointed out, in the Netherlands and Germany. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. And that's because, you know, we've lost it. And, you know, I got into this back and forth with the squid industry, you know, welcome to my world, um, <laughs> where they were, they were, you know, I did an op-ed in the LA Times about the transshipping of squid, and they were saying, you know, it's actually very cost—not just cost-effective, but actually carbon, low carbon—to ship stuff to Asia, process it, and send it back. And it is true that um, when you put stuff on a boat, um, it, it actually doesn't cost a lot of energy to ship a frozen product abroad and bring it back. Huh. But the issue, really, to me, isn't so much the carbon. You know, although it's you know you can talk about food miles and people people's ears prick up. But the issue is really about the outsourcing of the infrastructure. Because yeah. once you start losing the ability to pay people who are skilled at cutting fish, surprise, in a generation or two, you're not going to have anybody who can know how to cut fish. Yeah. Um, and that's a skill. It's an artisan skill. Um, Just as and once you lose that, then you lose your ability to, you know, to process your, you know, you lose your food security. Yeah. So food security can be lost on many levels. It can be lost on, um, you know, actual food being produced, but it's also the people who can turn it from a raw thing into something that you would want to eat. Yeah, right. I think so. that's a, such a great point and, uh, and so and applicable all the way across the spectrum, frankly. Yeah. And sure. then there's a the whole outsourcing of like, like selling Smithfield to the Chinese. And we, we don't have time, unfortunately, to talk about that. <laughs> you'll have but, to have another guest for that show. I, no, I'll have to have, you know, you'll come back and we'll talk about more about the fishing industry and then contrast it to something like that. But um, just to tell people, you have a website. It is... Yeah. So my website is just paulgreenberg.org, um, but people tend to find me more through my Twitter feed, which is the number four, so 4 Greenberg. Um, right. and Or you can go to facebook.com 
slash fourfish. Uh, that's spelled out F-O-U-R-F-I-S-H. But I'm happy to um, respond to people on Twitter and Facebook if Great. they have further questions. And the fir- and the name of the new book is The American Catch or just American, American Catch? Catch. Yeah. No, the. <laughs> yeah, right. American Catch. And it's got a subtitle, Saving Our, our Local Seafood. What is it? What is your the subtitle? Fight for our local the Fight seafood. for Our Local Seafood. Yeah. Paul, it's been a pleasure. You're a wonderful guest. I really My enjoyed brother, this. Brother I hope I see you at Shafe's Collaborative. If I don't, I hope it's not too long before we Some other again. collaboration will occur, I'm Exactly. Sure. Thank you so much for joining right. us today. Take care. Take care. Thanks to my sponsor, Kane Wine, Kane uh, Vineyards, and uh, thanks to my engineer, Jack Hensley, as always, and I'll see you next week. Thanks a lot, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>